All right. This will be technically part 11 for what we've done here. I guess technically it'll be like part one, I guess, technically for the church. Um, well, I mean, I guess technically it wouldn't be part one considering we, uh, we did at the church do uh, the work on James chapter one. But we worked on, uh, we're doing seven week study on the subject of temptation. And we started here for the church. We worked a pretty, I mean, we had the first hour that kind of got all messed up. So then the second hour really became the first hour and the second hour combined. But we did a pretty good job on James chapter 1. We uh, tried to establish a basic definition of temptation. And we uh, took that concept from James, looking at the Greek word that's translated temptation. And some, and some, translations they don't translate it temptation they translate it trial but we looked up the greek word realizing that the greek word had three aspects to it and those three aspects was an enticement to evil a trial and a test all right so we combine those three to say that temptation is an enticement to evil a trial and then what we did we we we, we didn't put test at that part of the definition we said it's an enticement to evil and it's a trial and or that challenges us or how how did we 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 worded it a lot of different ways but we'll say this that temptation is an enticement to evil and a trial that gets us to think speak feel desire and act in a way that is contrary to God's word it does this in an order to test to see in what ways we don't think speak desire feel or act in accordance with God's word. So we, we, we separate, you see how we separated the test out, right? That first part is it's an enticement to evil and it's a, tr- a trial, but both the trial and the enticement to evil still has the ability to tempt us, to cause us not to think, speak, act, or desire, feel, and act in a way that's, that's uh, or, and act in a way that's contrary to God's word. That all comes together to test to show us how we do not think, speak, desire, feel, or act in accordance with God's word. So it's an enticement to evil. And and, and in some ways, I don't even like separating it as a trial because the trial, to me, is an enticement to evil. Everything is an enticement to evil in some way, shape, or form. But okay, we'll still separate them. So they, they work together to ultimately lead us, guide us, and, you know, tempt us to speak, think, speak, act, or desire, feel, and act in a way contrary to God's word. But all of that is testing to show us. It's designed to show us how we do not think, speak, desire, and feel, and act in accordance with God's word. So I, I really, really emphasize that. And then what we did is we, uh, James chapter 1, if you remember verse 3, James chapter 1 verse 3 became very significant here. Or verse 2, I should say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So what we said is that according to God, we're to count it all joy when whether we're being enticed to evil or whether we're facing a trial, right? We count it all joy because God is using this to show us what's not right in us, our thinking, our speaking, our desiring, our feeling, our acting. So we're supposed to count it all joy. Now, I was hoping someone would raise some, some questions, some philosophical questions about that. No one did. 
But uh, we talked about those philosophical questions a lot last night in uh, uh, the, the live broadcast that we did. But th- it raises some serious issues, right? Because it's easy to say, hey, count it all joy. And then there's a woman being beaten and raped every day. Hey, count it all joy. Well, there's nothing to count that joy, right? There's a child being molested. Count that all joy. There's a child being beaten. There's a person dying of cancer. There's a person who's been paralyzed. There's a parent that just got a call that their child was killed by a drunk driver. Well, to say count it all joy because, hey, there's something good spiritual going to come from it. That That's... That's easy to say in church on a Sunday, count it all joy, and everybody will say, amen. But if you think about it from a, a even a, even a remote, forget philosophical, if you just think about it logically, you're kind of like, that's a messed up concept. And it's like, uh, when Christians study Job, they're always like, what a beautiful, wonderful story. There's nothing, I don't know there's anything beautiful or wonderful about the story. You say, well, Job benefited from it. So his kids had to die, so Job got some spiritual benefit? I mean, that seems like a twisted, psychotic story. So um, so it's it's a difficult concept. So let's just make sure we understand. To say, count it all joy, is not some like, hey, the next time you're going through a difficult time, just count it all joy, because God's going to do something good with it. That's easy to say, but the implications of that are rather disturbing. But we are to count it all, which immediately begins to make us realize that it, that as difficult as this is from a human perspective, and it's definitely not a nice thing to look at it from a philosophical perspective, meaning that our perspective has to be whatever is, whatever is best for our spiritual situation is more important than what is best for us emotionally, physically, or mentally. And I don't know if that's an easy thing to say, right? And you can't really say that to someone in counseling, right? Hey, this horrible thing happened to me. This person did this horrible thing to me. Well, count it all joy because it's good for you spiritually. Well, that doesn't make you feel so good, does it? So there's no easy way to round that. It just means we have to have a more spiritual-minded perspective than a a physical-minded perspective. But we spent a lot of time working on that, trying to understand what temptation is and counting it all joy. And then we looked at the two um, progressions. I'm not going to go through all of the progressions, but two progressions. I, I don't think we even scratched the surface on those progressions, but we had to move on. So all of this week has been dedicated to Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 4. That's what all of this week has been dedicated to for the Bible study exercise. This coming week, for those listening online, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 4. But for this week, it's been Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. We have done, I've done, well, I know at least over an hour of teaching. And then last night I did almost an hour and a half of teaching. That was to do a sermon review. It was supposed to be a sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 8. It really turned into uh, something completely radically different uh, because they never got to Deuteronomy chapter 8. But um, we'll, we'll try to finish that review. I don't know if we'll finish it this afternoon, maybe, maybe tonight. We'll try to finish it because well, it, it brought up a lot of issues. But for us today, here at the church, this is our this is the goal. Sunday school, Sunday morning is going to be Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. If everything works out that we have in services tonight, it will be Deuteronomy 8 
Matthew 4. So we're going to have basically three hours on these two passages of Scripture. But Deuteronomy 8 is where we're going to be today. So there's um, I, what I want to do, like in some ways, I should approach this with some kind of great introduction that kind of launches us into the text, but I'm just going to forgo that, right? We, we know that the curriculum wants us to look at Deuteronomy 8. Well, if you haven't looked at the curriculum, you don't know this. If you looked at the curriculum, they want us to look at Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4 in regards to a specific kind of temptation, right? That Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4 addresses a specific kind of temptation. We may circle back to that. I, uh, I want to just look at how most sermons approach Deuteronomy 8 is they don't really look at it so much from a temptation perspective. They look at it from a trial or difficulty perspective. But once again, that goes back to our how we define temptation, right? We define temptation as an enticement to evil and a trial, and both are designed to get us to think, speak, desire, feel, and act in a way contrary to God's word. Then a trial is as very much a part of temptation as, temptation, as an enticement to evil, So then we could say it's about temptation. Now, the problem is, the minute you say Deuteronomy 8 is about temptation, you find yourself in a major, major, major theological problem. Because we say, and James 1 pointed this out, that who does not tempt? God. Now, the minute we say God, who ordains and decrees all trials? If a trial is a temptation... How does that get God off the hook, right? Now, we all know, everybody knows how the London Baptist Confession and how th- theologians get around it, right? Everybody understand the way uh, theologians get around it. They call it a, the use of secondary means or secondary causes, right? So it's, it's such a weird way to do it, but just let me try to explain it. I'll just try to explain it to the best way I can. All right, so this, this journal here, is the trial. It's the difficulty, right? God ordains the trial. God ordains the difficulty. He decrees it. He allows it. He permits it. He limits it, right? God's in charge of it. That trial comes, it hits you, whether it's rape, murder, kidnap, whatever horrible thing it is, right? But then, but because, so how we try to get around it theologically, the trial God ordains it, but God's not the one doing it. The trial's the one bringing the temptation, not God. So God gets off the hook. Like, he's just using the journal to smack you across the face, but God's not the one smacking you across the face. It's the trial that's smacking you across the face. So it's a secondary cause. Look, to me, that's, that's, it's ridiculous. I don't know why we even think that that works, because who's the one ordaining the trial? Who's the one controlling the trial? Like, but God's not the one doing it. So he's using a secondary cause. I, I, that's, I have a hard time with that philosophically, theologically, biblically. But at the same time, the Bible says God's not the one doing the tempting. So you can say, well, it's just a trial. And in the trial, it's how I respond to it, whether it's a temptation. That's how, that's how we get around it, right? Like the trial is, it's just there, right? It's just the bad thing that happens. My response to it will determine if it's a temptation. So therefore, God's not the one doing the tempting. 
Well, same situation. God used Satan. So, yeah, yeah. Secondary, secondary cause. So I'm not saying it works because who created Satan? Who controls Satan? Who gave him the permission? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but God's not the one who did it. It's like, it's such a, I, man, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's supposed to work, but I understand that from a theological perspective, that's your only option, right? You got to say he's using the secondary cause. So there, so what I think what we can say is God is not directly doing the tempting, but I don't think you can say he's not indirectly involved. Okay. He's involved in the situation, which raises so many problems, right? I mean, I mean, I don't even know how we work around that, right? And so we'll, we'll, we'll we, I, we could spend years talking about that and we'll maybe work about it. But for, for this morning, let's at least jump into Deuteronomy 8 and see how far we can get in the first hour. You ready? Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 8. What do we begin with? We'll start with verse 1. All, well, let's do this. Let's remind ourselves of something, okay? Let's remind ourselves of something. When we talk about the book of Deuteronomy, a little bit of historical context, right? was written around 1406 B.C., according to at least one source. 1406 B.C. And this is at the end of the 40 years of wandering endured by the nation of Israel. Now, let's stop right here. Now, they wandered around for 40 years. Why did they wander around for 40 years? Because of sin, right? God brought them out of captivity. They get into the wilderness, and immediately what starts happening? Grumbling, complaining. Now, we, let's just be honest here. God could have avoided all of that, could he not? He could have just took them directly from Egypt right into the promised land, right? He didn't have to lead them into parts of the wilderness where there was no food or where there was no drink. He could have provided the food and drink right from the start. So he brings them into these situations. They grumble, they complain, have, they get all the way to the, to, the, to the border of the promised land. He could have just said, go in, don't wait. They send out spies. He, he, there's a million things he could, there could have been, he could have gotten rid of everyone in the promised land before they got there, right? I mean, there's a million things he could have done. So, but they do, how do they respond to that situation? Unbelief, right? And they want to go back where? To Egypt. Okay. So as a result, what happens to them, that entire generation? They die off for 40 years, right? A whole, now again, nobody can agree on the number. Some people say the number of people who came out of uh, Egypt was 30,000. Some say it was a million. Some say it was 800,000. So who knows? I mean, nobody can seem to agree on on a number. I mean, everybody debates it and debates it and debates it. Uh, But whatever, a whole lot of people have to die. And they die and they die and they die and they die and they die. So now Deuteronomy comes at really at the end of that 40 years of wandering, right? Does that give us some kind of historical context, right? At the time, the people were camped on the east side of the Jordan River or the plains of Moab across from the city of Jericho. They were on the verge of entering in the land that had been promised centuries earlier to their forefathers. The children who had left Egypt were now adults ready to conquer and settle the promised land. Before that could happen, the Lord had to repeat through Moses his covenant with them. So, in a sense, they're getting ready to go in. Now, this generation has already watched an entire other generation die off, right? They've watched them all die off. They've endured all of this. Now, they're getting ready to go in. Now, what happens? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. 
all the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Now, we know immediately what, what do we have in verse 1. What, how would we identify verse 1? What would we call verse 1? It's definitely law, right? It's definitely law. And it's definitely, you can see a little bit of that Old Testament concept, right? Because the Old Testament concept is what? Obey and live. Obey and live. A lot of people love to bring that same concept into the New Testament. But what do we know about every time there is an obey and live law given? What do we know almost every single time that happens in the Old Testament? They fail. Right? So let's just get that out of the way. They fail. Right? They fail. Now, some people try to take Deuteronomy 8, or at least... It was kind of implied in the sermon that I was reviewing last night that somehow Deuteronomy is going to give us the path to victory and how to live the victorious Christian life and that and what God does to give you victory. I'll call that it great. I'll call that greatly into question because we know how this story ends. And if you don't, I'll remind you here in a minute. All right. So we have a law given. We have kind of what do we want to call this? If We were outlining it. God's law, God's demands, God's commands, God's requirement. Whatever, however you would like to label verse one, all right? So he gives them the commandments. All right, let's just say he gives them the commandments or, or he calls for obedience to the commandments. Then what does he do in verse two? All right, and thou shalt remember, all right? They are to remember something, all right? They are to remember something. So they are, in a sense, told to obey. They're given a law. And then they're told to remember. What are they to remember? Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. So they are to be reminded of what? God led them. God led them. All right. Now, okay, there's a lot we could say here. All right. But they are to be reminded that basically... Who's been leading this, this, them this entire time? It's been God. God's been the one leading, right? What's the, is there a second thing that they are to be reminded of here? Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know that what was in thine heart, uh, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. All right, I'm going to say it this way. Verse 1, we'll call it law. Verse 2, we have two reminders. The first reminder is God's leading you. And the second reminder is, remember, there was a reason for what God was doing. It reminds them that there was a purpose in what God was doing. Right? In other words, he's, he's, they're reminding them, hey, God had a purpose in what he was doing. In other words, you weren't wandering around for 40 years for no reason. There was something going on. Because what could be the conclusion? What could have been the conclusion? Yeah, that God was just killing people. Right? I mean, that could have been. Now, you could argue, I don't know if this really makes it any better, but at least God is saying, hey, remember, there was a reason in all of this happening. There was a purpose behind it. All right? So we have law. We have a reminder. What are the two reminders? God was leading. 
there was a purpose, there was a reason for it, right? That there was some there was something going on there. Now, from a human perspective, what could you possibly say? From a human perspective, that may not make a lot of sense. Why do we have to wander around for 40 years, right? I mean, what could he have just said? I mean, how could God have done it? Go back to the promised land. Go back to the border of the promised land, right? What could he have done? All the people who can't come, you stay over here and everyone else? Come in. Now, you could argue, well, some of those people that were young were too young to go over by themselves. So then he made them walk around 40 years so they would be now old enough to go in. So then you could say maybe there was a practical purpose. All right? You could argue. You could argue that. Okay? Okay. Or you could argue that the whole 40 years was a, a never-ending object lesson to remind them of what happens when you disobey God. So that they should, it, they should be, like you would think this generation would be the generation ready to go, Right? I mean, because they've been watched, they've watched God's provision. They've seen God's leading, right? They've seen God's judgment. Who, who would be better re- ready to go into the promised land? I mean, where, where has God been for those 40 years? Right, right there in their midst, right? Right there, right? I mean, they've had, they've had revelation. They've had, they've had the tabernacle. Shaka- I mean, they've got, they've got everything. Like, if you talk about a generation, you, you talk about a discipleship program that should get basically close to spiritual perfection. I think this would be the greatest uh, discipleship program ever created in history. Right? I mean, no, because you walk around with God. People are dying all around you, showing you God's judgment. God is physically manifesting himself in a certain way through the Shekinah glory, right? They've got the tabernacle. They've got sacrificial system, right? They've got... Mo, they got get, being given direct revelation by God to Moses to them. They, I mean, like, I mean, they, they've got miracles happening. Yes, I mean, come on, you, this is going to be the greatest discipleship program in the history of discipleship. This this generation should have been like, sit back, we got this. We'll show you how to follow God. We will show you how to obey God. Right? You would think, right? That, that, that would be my theory, all right? So we have the law, we have the reminders. Now, that brings us to go back to verse 2 now, all right? I'm going to state, how do we want to state this, all right? We're going to have, we're going to have, we're going to break it down, law, reminder, and then we're going to have, um, how do we want to put this one? Because I, sometimes I connect it with the reminder or with the, uh, what God was, like the, a part of the two reminders, but I'm going to make it a third point. So here's what I'm going, here's how I'm going to, here's how I'm going to break it down. We got the law, we got the reminder how God was leading, and that there was a purpose in what was doing it, and then I'm going to call the third part, um, how do we want to, how do I want to refer to this? We're going to say the steps God took, all right? We're going to call them the steps. These are the, the actions God took. Right now, he reminds them of it, so we could put it as part of the reminder. But I want to separate them. Right? I just want you to see the reminder as, hey, God was leading you, and God was doing something. But then, in that reminder, he gives them the specific steps God took. Right? He gives them very specific things of what God was doing. Does he not? Right? I I I I see it. As, you see why I want to separate it? 
Because I could just say, God reminded them of what he was doing, and then I could say, here's what he was doing, and put it with the reminder. But I want to separate it so that we can specifically see what God was doing, the steps he was taking. All right? So, what were these steps? All right, here we go. All right? Remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee 40 years in the wilderness to... Now, he got, now, immediately, that too is saying there was a reason he was doing it. There was a purpose for it, yes? Now, what were the steps? What was he doing? Well, the first thing he was doing was what? He humbled them. He was humbling them. He was humbling them. He was trying to bring humility to them, all right? Well, how do we understand the word humility? How do we understand the word humbling? What, look up the Hebrew word. Just look up the Hebrew word. Okay. Uh, what, how, what does the Hebrew word give us here in Deuteronomy? Let's look it up. Let's make sure we have a good understanding of what God is doing here, the steps he was taking. I don't know if I want to call it steps. I'm debating with myself there, but that's okay. Bible study exercise, I always try not to give too much away anyway. You don't have to worry about saying it. Just what's the uh, basic definition? Just a kind of a basic definition. To depress literally or figuratively. A base. Okay, so in a roundabout way, let's see if this is a fair, I mean, I know this is a paraphrase of a paraphrase of a paraphrase, but he is humbling them, in a sense, by breaking them, bringing them to the end of themselves, uh, pushing them down. Is that, I, know, I know that sounds like a very negative way, but it's like it's trying to make them less, make them less. Them not relying on themselves. Them not focusing on themselves. Right? Bowed down. down, Right? Like, because when you, when you're proud, you're exalting yourself. You're putting yourself at the forefront. You're thinking about yourself. You, 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 you. To humble is to do what? It's to push the person down. Bow down. Submit. It's not about you anymore. So he's making them walk around 40 years. And what is he doing for those 40 years? He's humbling them so that they are not focused on what? Them. Now that's 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 a that, that yeah that that's a that's a hard concept, is it not? Right. But I'm just saying that's a hard concept. So the so the Christian life is well, well I'm gonna use it metaphorically. The Christian life is a 40-year wandering in the wilderness so that you are becoming more broken and more broken and more broken and more broken and more broken so you're not like, it's about me. Now, nobody wants that message, right? That God's discipleship program is to break you down so you stop thinking about yourself. Now, that's not easy to deal with, right? Because what does he do to do that? He can use others 
doing bad things, because Israel has issues with other people, right? Who do things to them that are not right. To do what? To humble them. You can be like, no, 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 you can't do that to me. I have my rights. No, 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 it's not about your rights anymore, right? He, he, could, he could do all kinds of things for them that would have been better for them where they wouldn't have had to suffer. Now, I know this is, it's no easy answer, right? I don't like this answer because on one hand, you can say, well, that makes no sense. Why is this person, why did this person suffer that way? Well, the Christian answer is not a comforting answer and you shouldn't run up and tell someone this when they just suffered some horrible tragedy. But theologically, the answer is you're being humbled. It's not a comforting. You don't go up and go, oh, I'm sorry, you, you, you got cancer and you're about to die? Hey, well, you're being humbled. Hey, hey, oh, that person just hurt you in a horrible way? Hey, those people are gossiping and slandering you? Hey, hey, you're being humbled. No, what do you want to do? Yeah, what do you want to do? I want to go find the people gossiping and slandering me, kick the door down, drag them outside, and beat them. And you're like, well, that's not a very nice thing to say. But I'm saying, come on, you... You, we can act all spiritual, but we get those feelings, do we not? Do we rarely go, oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't like this situation, but hey, count it all joy. I'm being humbled. Oh, no, but to be, to be humble. So he's humbling them. That, that's not an easy, I don't have, I look, I don't, I don't understand it. But well, we can tell he clearly did this for them, right? So, 40 years in the wilderness to humble them. Next, what else does he do? To prove thee. So he's humbling to prove. What is the word prove there? Look up the Hebrew word for prove. We don't have to say the actual, you know, if you can't say the Hebrew word, that's fine. Let's just get it. Okay, test. Uh, we're getting, yeah, it's going to be to test. It's going to be to prove. Just a basic definition. To test by implication to attempt, adventure, assay, prove, tempt, try. Right. So please notice how tempt is still, see how tempt comes into play there in the definition? Yes. Right? So, now, that, see, that's, that's so troubling, though, on a one hand, right? Because God is tempting them, but you can't say God is tempting them. But he's testing them to prove them. Now, what, who's being, who, who is the proof for? That's for them. Remember, it's not for God. God already knows what's in the heart. So guess what? God is doing all of this to humble you, to prove to you what? What is he trying to prove to you? What what does the text say? To know what is in your heart. Now, this is crazy. This is crazy. The only way for you to ever truly know what is in your heart is for the testing to occur. Right? You can think your heart is a lot of things, but the only way to ever know what's in your heart, to really know your heart, is a test has to occur to show you what's in your heart. Right? You can, you can convince yourself that in your heart this, in your heart that, but as soon as the test comes, as soon as whatever happens, all of a sudden what's in your heart comes pouring out in, in no time, right? 
Whatever Job may have thought about himself, when we read some of Job's words, he's like, I wish I was never, I was never born. I wish I was dead. You're like, what just happened to Job? This perfect upright man. All of a sudden you realize what's in his heart. You don't know what's in your heart until the test comes. So the test is to prove to you what is in your heart. And guess what? If you think about it, the situation is humbling you and breaking you. The proving humbles and breaks you because you're going to be immediately confronted that what's in your heart is probably not what should be there and you're going to be embarrassed by it before God. All right, what else is he doing? So humbling, proving. Well, just watch these words. You got humble, prove, and then look at that next word. To know, right? To know what's in thy heart. I know it goes with the proving, but I want, I'm going to put down to teach. He's teaching because you to know something, right? So he's humbling, he's proving, he's testing, and he's teaching you what is in your own heart. I know that goes with the proving part, but I want to separate it out a little bit, right? Does that make sense? He's teaching you something. Because it says to know what is in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no, right? There is the humbling, there is the proving, and there is the teaching. And then to add to the humbling part, we could have skipped down and done this, but I like to just go in order, verse 3. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and feed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. All right, now let's stop right here. Here's what I want to do. Okay, so let's, we're, we're working on kind of just a, a kind of a, an in process, we're in, in process trying to figure out an outline, right? Everyone's good with the first point of our outline being law, and that includes verse one, right? Everybody good with that? Okay, everyone sees verse two as a reminder. He reminds them. And what are the two things he reminds them of? God led you, and God had a purpose, right? Then we're calling these the steps God took or the, 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 the actions God took. I don't know. What, what do y'all think? What, how do you want to call the third point? I, I've given, I've, okay. I, I threw that out just as a, as an, I don't know what's the best way to put it, but there are steps God took. And the steps God took was number one, he humbled them, right? Mm-hmm. He proved them. proved them and he taught them. All right. The next thing is we can, I want you to show how uh, we'll call this the next, I want to put this with the reminders, but we separated from the reminders, but, or the purpose or even the steps, but I'm going to put how he humbled them. We'll call this how he humbled them because it explains how he humbled them in the next verse. Does it not? Okay. The means, I want to call it the means of humility, right? How, however, whatever you want to call it, right? Okay, I, I want you, I want, what I'm trying to do is get you guys to work out the outline. I don't want to just give you an outline is what I'm trying to do. All right, so we have law, we have the reminders. The reminders are simple. How God, uh, God was leading you and what he was doing, right? There was a purpose, right? Then, I still don't know if I want to call them steps. I'm still debating with what to do, but he clearly outlines he clearly outlines what God was doing to them, right? So he's outlining the purpose, or but we can call them the steps God took and the purpose, however you want to work, okay? And those steps were humbling, proving, 
teaching, right? I think there's one more thing he's doing, but we'll add that in a minute, all right? So we'll come back to that part of the outline. The next thing we're going to put is how he was humbling them, right? How he was humbling them, all right? Is that okay? How does he humble them? Right? He does two specific things in order to humble them that may seem contradictory. They may seem contradictory here. And one of these, we're going to go back to the steps he was taking because it belongs there. But I'm trying to, uh, uh, so just so that you know, just for teaching purposes, I'm trying to separate these out maybe in a way that doesn't make sense from an outlining purpose, right? And an outlining purpose, you usually want to group it together, right? For simplicity, but I don't want to group them together because I want to get the point across. Yes? All right, does that make sense? So like I could put a lot of this with the reminders, but I'm separating this from the reminders to the steps because I want you to see the individual steps that he took, right? Well, then I want you to see how he humbled them, but one of the ways he humbled them, one of the ways he humbled them actually belongs to the steps that he took. So I'm separating them for a purpose, all right? So how did he humble them? What was the first thing he did? He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. All right. The first way he humbled them was to lead them into hunger. To put them, or we, what could we call this? Well, that, well, we're calling this section how he humbled them. But I'm saying by leading them to a place of hunger, what could we call that? Leading them to hunger. He led them into a position of what? Poverty or of lack or of need or of necessity. He put them in a position where they had need. They had lack. They had necessity. They were in poverty. In other words, they they did not have what you need. This is not, not, not taking them into a situation of not having what you want. This is putting them in a situation they did not have even what they needed, right? When you're hungry, that's a need, right? Okay, that's a need. He led them into a position of lack. He led them into a position. And why would you lead someone into a position where you're hungry? Well, it's to demonstrate your inability. He put them in a position they could not feed themselves. He put them in a position, situation where their lack, their poverty, was one in which they could not satisfy. They could not fix it. They could not get it. They could not do anything about it. The worst thing is when you have a need that you can't fix. Like you need, it's a desire. It's something that's strong, but you are not, you can't fix it. Now, your options to fix it at that point become what? Now, we could argue, right? Now, in their particular situation, I don't know this would have worked. But let's just, let's just look at this from a human perspective. Here they go. They're following God. They're following. Like they just, just try to wrap your mind around this situation. God's leading you, and he leads you right to a place, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have no food. Now, your first thought would be, God doesn't know what he's doing, right? So now there's a temptation, right? There, there, see how the trial becomes a temptation? Because now you can become frustrated with God. So then your first thinking is, 
possibly go back. Second thing you may try to do, find some other group of people to join with to provide for you, which in many cases Israel gets themselves in trouble. In other words, you sometimes when you're put in a position of need, the need becomes a source of temptation because you try to fulfill said need in an unbiblical way. Does that make sense? That becomes a problem, yes? Everyone should say amen, right? That becomes a problem. So you see, and how does that humble you? Because you're immediately either going to realize I'm thinking I'm doing this the wrong way or, man, I can't do anything about this. It shows your inability. And one thing that will destroy pride, look, you can be a prideful person. You put a prideful person who thinks they're really good at, say, basketball, put them on a basketball court and destroy them. How do prideful people typically respond to that? They get mad. They get ticked off. They may quit and not play anymore because they don't ever want to have to feel because they want to be the best. Right? You get it put in a certain situation, your pride can get destroyed really, 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 really quick. All right? So that's the first thing he does to humble them. What's the next thing he does? Now, this is weird, right? He provides. Now, remember the steps he took? He humbled, proved, taught, and he provided. So really, this step belongs there. This is a step, but I'm separating it because somehow this step and that verse is connected with what? The humbling. How does the, how that we, we can everyone understand how the hungering, leading them to hunger would humble? Everybody can understand that? How would the providing lead to humility? Do you think that humbles people? Well, I think, right, but how does it humble? I, it, I, I got, no, I got, I, I absolutely believe the text is saying it's a lesson, but how does it, it just, it's weird. Like, I can understand how hunger can humble you, right? Which they knew not, because not only are they starving and then they get food, but they don't even know what it is. Well, it's humbling them in this way. It's humbling them because it's, they're not able to do it for themselves. God has to do it for them. Now, that humbles the belt, that humbles the pride, the ego, because sometimes we want it ourselves. We don't want someone to do it for us, right? Like sometimes you take a little kid, and when you're over there trying to do it, I can do it myself, right? Because they reach that point, they're like, no, 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 don't, don't. You're making me feel like a baby, right? Right? Well, this to make you feel like a baby. Because, like, no, you can't even feed yourself. You can't even feed yourself. I have to feed you. Now, some may not be humbled by that. Some may be like, well, go ahead, feed me all. I've got no problem. I'm not proud enough to even worry about it. Feed me. I'm good to go. But But it's weird it's connected with humility, is it not? And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. Obviously, to suffer to hunger is a part of the humbling, Yes. But, and he fed thee with manna, I believe that's a part of the humbling. And then it humbled them because they did not feed themselves. 
They didn't even know a which, a which thou knewest not. He fed them with manna, which thou knewest not. He feeds them in a way which they can't even understand, right? Which their fathers did not know, but that he might make them to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, which immediately demonstrates what? That their ultimate provision will always come from God. That man does not live by bread alone, but from the word that proceeded from the mouth of God, meaning it's God's word that ultimately feeds them. And, and, and what way, and what, what is, and what way did they, that, is it meant here? Like, so, because we typically take that to mean, oh, the, what we should, we should only eat of God's word. This is the thing that should sustain us. But in this particular case, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, meaning that they were going to be sustained and provided for by what God spoke, what God did, what God provided. Does that make sense? God's the one who, in a sense, it's his word that brought forth the manna. It's his word that brought forth the food. So what really sustains God's word, not the actual food, because it's not like man is, man is not sustained by bread alone. They are sustained by what God says, because God is the one who's bringing forth the food. Does, do you make, does that make sense? We usually spiritualize this and say, see, what should be more important to you is your Bible than physical food. But in this context, the issue is, it's not the physical bread, it's the God who spoke that brought the bread to you, brought the manna to you. Does that make sense? Does anybody understand that distinction? It's not usually preached that way. It's preached that, see, man does not live by bread alone, but by the Bible. So you should care more about your Bible than eating physical food. I'm not saying that there isn't an application to that somewhere, but in this case, it's not what it's about. He's telling them. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everywhere that proceeded the mouth of God. Well, can they pick up their Bible? No, right? This is not about Bible study. This is not about devotional time. This is about showing them that your provision is not about how much physical bread you can find. Your provision is directly related to what God speaks, what God brings to you. So therefore, you're going to be humbled because meaning that this entire situation is controlled by whom? God. All right, now next... What does he get? What does he say? What does he do in verse four, five? Well, thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Okay, meaning once again that what their survival wasn't based on their food. Food. Their survival wasn't based on their clothing. Their survival wasn't based off their feet. It was based off. God's word, God spoke, God did these things, right? So meaning that they need to be humbled and and this is where the curriculum wants us to go. He's humbling them so that they are relying on whom? Selves. And and the whole thing here is about the temptation on self-reliance. All right, does that make some sense? All right. We're going to have to stop here. So, for, oh man, there's so much more here we could do, but all right. For the sake of trying to make this outline as as nice as we can make it, let's now try to drive home an outline, all right? 
everybody, so now I want everyone to participate here. So, all right. So, number one, everyone good that we call the first verse law? That's clear law and commandments, right? Yes? And that covers verse one. We're good with that. Next, second part of our outline, I think we're very good to say reminder, right? Or reminders, plural, right? There's two reminders. And I want everyone to understand why I'm separating this out, right? Because I know what you're going to say. Well, the, all of those things are listed in the reminders. I understand that. But for, for I want to break it down. So we're going to call the, and the reminders are very simple. What? All the ways, remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee. We, the word remember is right there in verse 2. That's why we're calling it a reminder. Everybody see that? Hey, all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness, right? Second, the next word, Two, though two describes why he was leading them for 40 years. He's a purpose. Hey, God was leading you, but there was a purpose because they may not have understood the purpose. In fact, I would have probably argued that they would have thought the purpose was what? Just punishment, just judgment. So he's like, no, there's a purpose here. Now, at this point, you could just go ahead and list all of the purpose, but I'm trying to separate it out because what I want you to see is here is the law, here is the reminders, but here are, I'm going to call them the steps that God took or the act, well, I'll just call them the steps that God took. And the steps he took were, number one, he was humbling them. Everybody got that? In other words, breaking them. Bring them to the end of step. The second thing he did was proving them, right? He wanted, and he was proving them to them, not proving them to him. Third, he was teaching them, right? What was he teaching them? He was teaching them to see what was in their heart, right? Next, he was, okay, remember, I told you we had to come back and add it to it. He provided for them, right? Remember I said where we're going to have to come back and add it because in the rest of the text about him providing? Okay, right. So we're going to add providing there. Everybody got that? Okay. Next in our outline. No, those are the steps. that We just looked at the steps. The means of humbling or how he humbled them, right? How did he humble them? Okay. He hunger, he caused them to hunger and he provided them, right? There's the provide. The providing is going to show up in two parts. Everybody see why? Okay, right. Because the providing is a part of the steps, but then it's weird the way that the text almost says, here are the steps, but listen, here's exactly how he was doing it. He was humbling them in a very specific way. And the, and the way he's humbling them may be a little bit confusing to us. He humbled them and by, by causing them to hunger and by providing for them. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but a lot of people would look at that going, see, this is God's discipleship program. This is God helping them become the Christians we're supposed to be. These are the steps to the victorious Christian life. That's how a lot of preachers would handle this. The only problem is, how well does that discipleship program work? Because this gener- even the other generation are all going to die. So that don't even count in that story, right? They're all going to die. 
this generation is going to go over into the promised land. Now, the, after you read Deuteronomy, what's the next book? Joshua. Okay, we know there's going to be sin early on with Achan, right? Okay, you can say, well, that's one man. They kind of blame the whole camp of Israel for it if you read the text. But you, we make it through Joshua. Whatever good you think they're doing in Joshua, and it looks maybe you're looking like, man, Israel's really got their act together. As soon as you get to Judges chapter 1, what do you start reading? It, it, the text will read something like this. They failed to drive these people out of the land. They failed to drive these people out of the land. They, they were coexisting or cohabiting with these. And it's failure, 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 failure. Before along, judges state something like, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, craziness. And then by the time, and so judges just gets bad. And remember that never-ending cycle? Cycle. But it sends, that's the generation. Who had the 40-year object lesson? That's the generation that got this supposedly wonderful discipleship program. All right. Now, once you get done with judges, then what happens? Okay, you got Ruth, right? You kind of have this inter... inter I was going to say, now we're going to, four lines are going to be like, you know, we need a king because I guess God leading them, providing them wasn't enough, right? Now we need a king. They get a king and then what just transpires from that? Well, we know the north, how good are their kings? All bad, right? South is a weird mix, right? But well, ultimately, both of them, the north, Assyria, Boom. South Babylonian captivity. Then even after the captivity, another 70-year object lesson. They come out of it. Remember, then they're like, well, we don't really want to build the temple. So he has to send prophets to say, hey, do you think maybe you could build the temple? And then the next thing you know, where do we find them? Under Roman control. And then where do we find them? Wiped off the face of the earth in 70 AD. Wow. Wow. That... that's a great uh, success story. Now, a lot of preachers take that and say, this is how God gives you the victorious Christian life. Why would I take a text and say this is the steps to a victorious Christian life when the very people who experienced it for real? Now, what do you do with that lesson? Uh, Yeah, well, we don't know. Okay. I think there's a reason why Deuteronomy 8 is connected to Matthew chapter 4. That should probably give you the answer, but I'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for this just very important text. Help us continue to think about it, meditate on it, and help us connect it to uh, the next section uh, in the next hour. And we just ask that you continue to guide and direct us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,